This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, our podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Anne, and I am the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking about Liz Son's new book, Embodied Reckonings, Comfort Women, Performance, and Transpacific Redress. Liz, welcome to the show. Hello, Anne. Thank you for having me. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for being here. Liz, I wonder if we can begin the interview with you telling us a little bit about yourself. My name is Liz Sun, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Theater at Northwestern University. I'm also the director of the Interdisciplinary PhD in Theater and Drama Program. My research focuses on the interplay between histories of gender-based violence and transnational Asian and Asian-American performance-based art and activism. I'm also involved with a local organization here called Can Win. This is an organization that supports Asian-American and immigrant women survivors of domestic abuse and sexual violence. They're also the local organization that supports the global transnational movement in support of comfort women survivors. And I'm a part of Can Win's Comfort Women Justice Advocacy Team. Mm, yeah, thank you so much for your amazing work in Kenwin as well. I've heard about Kenwin and I really admire their work. Um, maybe in relations to uh, what you said about your both academic and advocacy work, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you came to write Embodied Reckonings. So Embodied Reckonings began as a dissertation, and um, this dissertation began as uh, seminar papers. So I um, there was a, a spring semester where I was taking one course on the relationship between performance, transnationalism, and the public sphere, and another perform, uh, class on race and, and memory. And during this time, as I was taking these classes, I was also reading the Korean newspaper in English and read about these protests that had been happening in Seoul, South Korea, across from the Japanese embassy. These uh, were the Wednesday demonstrations held by survivors of Japanese military sexual slavery and their supporters. And they had been gathering every week across from the embassy to call for official apology and reparations. And I was struck by the similarities that I noticed between um, what I was studying, um, protests by the Madres and Abuelas in uh, Buenos Aires, um, these women who had been protesting every week in the Plaza de Mayo, calling for accountability for the disappearance of their children during the Dirty War, and ways in which uh, protesters in Korea were similarly using, um, um, for example, stretching thinking about um, movement in particular public spaces, and also thinking about uh, using accoutrements like um, 
certain uh, clothing items, whether it's banners or vests. Uh, in the case of the Madras and Abuelas, it was white handkerchiefs that they put around their um, around their head. So there were certain similarities that I noticed between the protest repertoires. Um, and then in this other class that I was taking on race and memory, I uh, decided that I wanted to write about the museum at the House of Sharing. This is a, a place where some of the survivors live in Korea. And I was just struck by um, efforts to try to memorialize this history and the different um, elements that are part of the exhibit. And after I'd written these papers, my professors um, had encouraged me and told me that there was something larger right in the papers, that this could possibly become um, a bigger dissertation project. And for me, I realized that if this is something that I'm going to write about, I have to go and experience it for myself. So I applied for a research grant and was able to go to Korea um, to work on this uh, for the first time in summer of 2007. And that's when I had a chance to participate in the Wednesday demonstrations, to meet uh, survivors and, and activists. Um, and I realized that this was a project um, that I that I needed to and I wanted to work on, um, not only because of um, just what I was witnessing on the street. I mean, it was it was quite um, dynamic to see how the supporters and activists were creating this this redressive space on the street. But I really thought that there was a larger story here to talk about not just what the women endured during the war, but to focus on the life that came out of a history of violence. And that life is the life of activism and artistic engagement. And so I wanted to write about write about that history. Now, in 2007, that happened in the summer. And then in the fall, I had a chance to be an interpreter for um, survivor Imakdar, who came to Yale to give her public testimony. And I have to say that um, was quite an impactful um, experience for me to be able to spend time with um, this survivor, but also to be able to uh, interpret her, her testimony. Uh, that same week, I also had a chance to see a stage production, uh, The Trojan Women in Asian Story. And this is a production that interweaves the story of Korean comfort women with uh, Euripides' Trojan Women. And it was really you know, fascinating to me to experience two different kinds of performances that same week, one a testimony and the other an aesthetic production. And it got me thinking about the power of the body and the power of embodied expression, but also the stakes of what it means to move from the testimony of a survivor to then the aesthetic representation of what they had experienced. And so when I think about the beginnings of this project, those those moments in 2007 really kind of stick out, stick out to me. Yeah, I think that for me as well, how you really elegantly in your book weave together the stories of testimony, demonstrations, as well as redressive theater was um, just really beautifully done. And I also wonder whether you can talk a little bit more about women's tribunal that you discuss in chapter three as well as uh, chapter two as well, because um, you talk about how women's tribunal became an embodied site of resistance and pointing out how sexual slavery was refused legibility as crime under the international law that prioritized normalizing state interstate relations. Um, and you also discuss how uh, these embodied acts of women in the uh, tribunal was 
also refuge legibility under the law, under the legal system that prioritize words. And I thought that um, this was an amazing contribution in your book. And I wonder whether uh, you could talk more about the tribunal as well as um, the as well as the power you found in the embodied acts of testimony and resistance in the tribunal. I think it's important that when we look at the history of Japanese military sexual slavery and we think about silencing around this history, that it's important to think about silencing on multiple levels, um, on the personal level, on the communal level, on the national level, and also on the transnational level. And if we're talking about the transnational politics of silencing around this history, we have to go back to the Tokyo Tribunal, which was held after the end of World War II. Um, and during the Tokyo Tribunal, um, which was uh, U.S.-led uh, US allied officials uh, conducted the tribunal, there were presentations on sexual violence committed against women. But these instances were glossed over because the emphasis was placed on uh, war crimes committed against POWs. And so when we look at state silencing, we have to start there with the Tokyo Tribunal. Now, let's fast forward to um, the late 1990s and then to 2000. At that moment, if we're looking at the global social movement that emerged in support of Cumberland survivors, we have to really look at the, um, the participation of Japanese and Korean activists. Um, because they were at the forefront of calling for various legal practitioners, activists to come together and to speak back to the failings of the Tokyo Tribunal, right? They wanted to create a space where people could begin to talk about legal accountability and to also create a space where survivors from across the world could come and give testimony. And so they gathered and created this People's Tribunal that was held in early December of 2000 in Tokyo. So this year is the 20th anniversary of the Women's Tribunal. And during this tribunal, um, a number of the countries who were impacted um, by this, uh, this history were able to give legal presentation, um, but also survivors, over 60 of them were able to come forward and to give their testimony. And so the, the Women's Tribunal functioned both as a traditional court where Emperor Hirohito and various military officials were being tried for the crime of military sexual slavery, but it also functioned as a kind of truth commission where survivors could be given the space to be able to give their testimony. And so for me as a performance scholar, um, when I looked at the Women's Tribunal, I not only was thinking about um, the aesthetic components of the Women's Tribunal. So during the Women's Tribunal, there um, there were a, there was a dance performance, a traditional Korean dance performance. There was a short presentation from um, the vagina monologues. Um, and then there were various um, artistic works that were displayed. So as a performance scholar, you know, I not only look at aesthetic objects, so performance as an object of inquiry, but I also think about performance as a methodology. Right? What does it mean for us to look at different forms of communication and behavior, like a testimony, like a protest, through a performance lens? If you're looking at these things through a performance lens, you then become attentive to certain questions, questions around embodiment, interactions between people, especially between those who are the performers and audience members. Uh, we look, we become more attentive to things around the strategic use of space, Right. And so these kinds of questions, as I was kind of thinking about them when I considered the Women's Tribunal, 
kind of opened my eyes to the ways in which survivors were pushing against juridical, traditional juridical protocols that you usually see in courts, right? Where, where with testimony, there's so much an emphasis on logos-centered testimony, or there's such an emphasis on a kind of structure, right, for how a witness would give their testimony, starting with the oath of testimony and then kind of an interrogation back and forth, right, between the prosecutor and the witness. And when I went back and reviewed the videos, so in terms of archive, you know, I didn't get a chance to attend the Women's Tribunal, but I watched um, the videos of, of the tribunal. And, and this archive is both held at um, uh, the women's, uh, the Korean Council's, uh, the Korean Council um, for Women Drafted into Military Sexual Slavery is the main organization at the forefront of the movement in Korea. And so they had an archive of the videos. And then in, in Japan, the Women's Active Museum in Tokyo is the only museum in Tokyo that has um, archives and exhibits related to this history. They also held the videos of the Women's Tribunal. And because the Women's Tribunal was bringing together people from across the world, they decided that English would be the main language that would be used. And then people who did not know English would be able to participate through um, simultaneous interpretation. So I'm fortunate that, um, you know, I was able to view those videos and that they were in English. And so when I reviewed these videos and I paid, you know, as a performance scholar, I was kind of being very attentive to ways in which the women were using their bodies to give testimony. I started to notice a number of things. So the probably the most um, paradigmatic example that stands out to me is a survivor from East Timor who was, um, you know, she was trying to explain what she had experienced, but words were not enough. And so she gets up and tries to move around and push the table because she wanted to demonstrate what they had done to her body when they were taking her away. But the, but the actual uh, space, right, of, the, of that court-like um, proceeding kind of prevented her from giving full testimony. So that's when I saw a clear kind of um, moment of ways in which the survivors were kind of pushing against, literally pushing against kind of traditional juridical protocol. And one could say that is a form of dissent or form of um, um, of resistance. But also I saw it as a, a moment in which they're drawing attention to a limitation, but then they're opening up another possibility. Because if you looked at other testimony, there were women who would um, try to show you, for example, one woman who was stabbed multiple times for her words were not enough. She had to show you where this weapon touched her body and how it marked her body. And so these nonverbal modes of testimony, right? They open up so many possibilities. And this includes um, gestures, right? This includes tears. This also includes silence. Silence is also a part, right? And I think it's so important to be attentive to the pauses Right? In those moments where the survivor, you see them breathing, right? Or you see them then gesturing or moving in a certain direction, right? These are all part of really, I think, honoring the full testimony of these women. But as we pay attention to these embodied aspects, you know, as you mentioned, it, you know, in my book, I'm making the argument that they are pointing out, right, the limitations of these legal protocols and also pointing out the absence, right, in this earlier tribunal. And so the women's tribunal that was held in in Tokyo, I think was a um, just was was a a paradigmatic moment 
in 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 a just an important moment in the history of the transnational social movement because it not only brought together all of these activists and survivors but it made such a i think um, emphatic point about understanding women's rights as human rights and understanding that these traditional um, protocols and also this earlier tribunal had contributed to the silencing around this history. And it was time now for an international community to come together to think about redress and what that meant. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, yeah, that's extremely powerful. And when you were talking about performance as methodology, I was talking, I was also thinking of your in-depth discussion in chapter one about Wednesday demonstration as well, Suyo Siwi, and how you really emphasize on the orality. So um, the sound that the women make, as well as the visuals of women invoking their past, as well as um, the physicality of now so as an older woman like how their innocence is uh, was taken away and how this is organized by um, the Council of uh, Women, the Council of Korean Women Directive for Military uh, military, uh, Sexual Slavery. And I was thinking of the complex um, legacy of uh, the sexual slavery and how they chose to perform it and how they chose to carry across their message. And I was wondering whether you could speak uh, more about your experience of um, actually participating in this um, Wednesday demonstrations, as well as how when we as a scholar critically analyze the demonstration and limitation of some of the optics, for example, innocence uh, that are presented, um, how do we as scholars acknowledge our place of privilege while trying to elevate the voices of the performers and activists? So as a, as a scholar, I, I use mixed methods. I, I both do archival research, but I also conduct, um, conduct ethnographic fieldwork. And for me, it was um, really critical to be able to be out on the streets and to participate in the Wednesday demonstrations. And when I think back to um, some of my experiences on, on the street participating in these protests, I think one of the most um, I guess one of the most impactful ones that kind of sticks out to me is one of my first Wednesday demonstrations when I first, um, you know, I noticed that when people were gathering in the streets that the survivors were kind of seated on these stools that were placed on the sidewalk and then their supporters started gathering behind them. And so you could clearly see how everybody was facing the Japanese embassy. And in that way, the Japanese embassy, right, was being positioned as the main audience. But as more people came to the protest, you know, they naturally started to kind of spill out into the street. And then this kind of circle of bodies formed around the survivors. And then a number of people had their backs to the Japanese embassy, but they were facing the survivors who were clearly the main audience. So in that kind of gestural turn where people are like facing the embassy, but then they move and then they're facing the women, 
that's when I began to realize and see the workings of these protests as not only being for redress, but also being a form of redress itself, right? Ways in which we're not just there to call for official apology or reparations, but we're also there to honor, right, and support these women and to kind of think about what kinds of connections are supporters developing with the survivors. And so I write about um, two two different forms of, of redress, one being the kind of street education of this history and then the importance of the building of kind of a uh, intergenerational um, kinship-like structure among protester survivors and these women. I think it's so important when scholars are, are writing about um, activism and, and social movements that we practice critical generosity, right? Where we're constantly trying to um, dance between both acknowledging and honoring the work of activists and what they're trying to do at the same time, making sure that we also are bringing um, a critical lens to bear on what we are studying and that those two are not in opposition they're actually in partnership with each other. Because I think that if we're going to, that one way of, of also honoring what's, hap- what's happened, you know, at, during these protests is also to kind of step back and to think about the history, but also to kind of think about different things that one may view as limitations and also things that one may view as um, potential, um, you know, critiques, that it's okay to bring that into into the mix. And so for me, and I have to say, that's something also that um, I struggled with, right? Because, you know, I'm somebody, it becomes pretty clear which side I'm on. <laughs> you know, I'm very, of course, like I'm deeply um, supportive and I want to somehow support these women and their ongoing effort. Um, at the same time, I knew that there are certain things I noticed that I thought, hmm, you know, I wonder why they used that strategy because it had X, Y, and Z certain negative ramifications. Or, you know, why, why would they do this when they could have done something else? You know, as a, as a scholar, I'm, I'm called to bring, you know, that kind of critical perspective to bear on, on what I'm looking at. And as you, as you said, when you talked about innocence and the kind of activist use of kind of the rhetoric and imagery of innocence, that is one area where I both I wanted to acknowledge and recognize the importance of ways in which protesters in the early 1990s had to use images and rhetoric around sexual and moral innocence to be able to um, kind of distinguish this particular history of sexual violence from other histories of sexual violence. At the same time, what that ended up doing is that it then obscured the complexities of the other history of sexual violence that activists were placing the comfortment history against. And it was very important to be able to tell multiple aspects and facets, right, of the activist protest repertoire. But I think that's, you know, you know, I think especially for those of us who write about, um, you know, protest and, and activism, it's, it's something that we're constantly trying to negotiate trying to honor, right, the blood and sweat of the people that we are writing about, but also making sure that we are not afraid to also bring our critique to the table. Yeah. 
Yeah, and thinking about this contentious relationship between, I mean, not necessarily contentious actually. Like, um, it is uh, something that is like deeply also collaborative, and is happening also in solidarity. But uh, I was also thinking of how in chapter three you uh. You look at redressive theater, and um, this is something that I also think about as a uh, Korean Canadian as well. Like uh, how there is a certain you know distance that I have um towards uh like Korea, but then at the same time like uh, um because I was also born in Korea, like I am also deeply implicated in the history and thinking about the politics of representation. And uh, in chapter three, you show the incidents of how um some of the um survivors were not comfortable with the representation and how the intermixing of um histories can sometimes erase um the particularity of the history or um comes at the expense of again the erasure of the survivors' voices. So I also wondered how you negotiate that um ethical question as well as a researcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think when we're looking at uh, aesthetic representations of um, this this history, it's it's really important to think about you know the stakes of of what it means to um, be attentive, right, to the histories and experiences of the survivors, while also honoring um, the artistic freedom, right, of of um, of different people to be able to engage with this history. Um, and so for, for me, when I, when I looked at, you know, in that chapter there, it's been exciting, I should say for the, since the early two thousands to kind of see the proliferation of theater and dance around this, around this history. And so I, you know, was really attentive to, you know, what were theater artists? Um, what were they trying to do right through this powerful medium of, of theater where we get to come together as an audience, be in the same space and to be in the presence, right, of actors who are bringing a story to life, and I, you know, I wanted, I wanted to make sure that in this chapter that I both, you know, talked about the power of theater to do that because I think it's one of the most dynamic forms of storytelling, and I think particularly with this history where the survivors, right, so many of them have passed away, and soon there will be no survivors. And so the experience that I had, you know, many, many years ago in 2007, when I said I was an interpreter, you know, of being in the space, listening to live testimony, that is now, that opportunity is now almost gone. But what we do have is we have theater actors, right, who are coming into this process of, let me then, you know, continue the storytelling. Let me try to bring this woman's testimony to life, to create a space where we can be a community of witnesses, right? So I think it's so important to, to think about the power, right, of an artistic form like theater in doing that. I also noticed in the different theatrical works that I looked at that these artists were also able to talk about issues that were not often addressed in these other spheres of activism like protest. They got to talk about, for example, the intergenerational ramifications of this history, right? Kind of the intergenerational traumatic legacies of what it means for family members to live with this and what it means for the survivors, right? To kind of negotiate what it means to be um, a survivor in terms of their family and their community. At the same time, you know, with aesthetic representations, 
One, I think also, of course, as you mentioned, has to be attentive to questions around the politics and the ethics of representation. So in that chapter, I also talk about um, the production, The Trojan Women and Asian Story, which I mentioned earlier at the beginning of our conversation and how it was so impactful to me. And what's so fascinating about that production is it's, um, you know, it's a powerful way to tell this story, but it, I was struck by the ways in which um, ways in which violence and pain were represented. So as for the artists, one, um, an aesthetic and I should say an ethical approach they used to represent sexual violence was to use highly stylized movements that were puppet-like. So you don't get a you know realistic representation, but you get a stylized representation of what pain might have been like. So the so the movements of a marionette puppet convey a sense of disconnection from one's body. That's something that survivors talk about. And so these artists were using these marionette-like movements. And so for me, that was a very like I thought effective um, aesthetic technique to use. But along with using that aesthetic technique. There were moments in the production where sometimes one of the actress, she would she had like um, blood like dripping down her body. And to me, that was a moment where the representation um, was almost in a sense spectacularizing the violence committed against the women. And so I'm, I'm actually quite critical of, of that particular aesthetic technique. And so you'll see kind of, you know, I'm kind of I'm trying to um, kind of show how I'm balancing, right? Both talking about, you know, the the power of these works, but also talking about some of the aesthetic choices that were problematic. Now, um, I, I'm glad that you mentioned how some of the survivors, right, had misgivings um, or frustrated with some of the representations. And that's in reference to the Korean production called Bong Sun-hwa. And, and this particular um, play is fascinating. It also circulated here to the United States. And so audience members here got to see it. But there are certain scenes in there. Um, there's, there's one scene where a, a survivor has collected all of these military notes. And as, um, as, as troops are coming in, she, um, she, decides, she climbs like this a pile of crates and then she like throws all these military notes. You know, they're kind of like monetar- monetary notes. Um, form of whatever the military almost means like they're kind of like dollar bills in a sense right and so she kind of throws them out into uh onto the um the, into the space and there are um the survivors who had seen the production were deeply upset with that scene because they said one we you know we never received military notes two they said you know that's just how how it represents the women their experience is so far from our own experiences so they were critiquing the work for being historically inaccurate. So that leads to a really interesting yeah. for artists. How do you balance both being um, having creative license, but also wanting to be attentive to historical accuracy? How do you walk that fine line? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially when survivors feel that um, the historical representation has a lot at stake and that it's not a simple misrepresentation, but it is something that shapes the societal perception of them as well as maybe can twist their experiences. And um, I, yeah, I definitely agree that this is a very complex question to grapple with. Uh, before yeah, exactly. I proceed- Oh, I just want to follow up on oh, that. Oh, sorry, continue. I think I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, the stakes here are different, right? Because 
the Japanese government, right? And because there were still there are still so many distract distractors who who say, you know, it's not true what these women are saying, right? They didn't really go through go through that. You know, it's so important, right? Because there are there are ramifications, like if there are these kinds of um, you know, historical, you know, mis- misrepresentations. What does that what does that mean, right? Does that then, you know, contribute to um, a larger kind of questioning of the women's testimony? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think um, the fragility that you mentioned of this women's position, uh, I think, goes really well with this uh, question that I had in mind, which I think is just so uh, critical for us to address in this particular podcast because of the outcry it caused in Korea, and which also gave me a lot of pain as well, um, which was the um, incident with, you know, one of the most respected survivors, Lee Yong-soo, accusing Yoon Myung uh, and the Korean Council for Justice and Remembrance for the Issues of Military Sexual Slavery by Japan uh, for um, corruption and how basically the media like really mobilized and the politicians also mobilized this and how the conservative Japanese uh, really took upon this opportunity to say, sexual slavery history that's all a lie like as is obviously shown by this organization and what was probably political um ploy by opposition of yumiang to frame her um i mean people really don't know like i think the full story but um has turned into on erasure again a disavowal of the history of military sexual uh, slavery in Korea, which is just super painful to see. And I wondered whether you could address how, yeah, like after writing this book and conducting extensive research, um, observing what is currently happening in Korea with how, you know, like all the like amazing work that this organization has built and like amazing survivor work too is basically being thrown into shambles because of the political interest that is clearly being shown right now in Korea and also in Japan. And how do we continue fighting with the, you know, trauma of this um, scandal that's um, deeply like implanted in us? Yeah, I mean, I sh- I share your your sense of of how witnessing you know all of this kind of unfold was painful, right? And it, was, it was heartbreaking to kind of see the different ways in which the media were were also um, misrepresenting the survivor who spoke up, right? There was a dismissal and a questioning of the veracity of of her um, testimony and questioning of her of her memory, um, but also ways in which um, there was a, a there's a way in which um, you know when we think about the 30 year long fight of activists also seeing that become obscured right and also um, suppressed and, and misrepresented and you know I have to say that it's so important you know as somebody who has studied this movement I think it's so important that we remember that a movement is not defined by one individual right that this movement, is it's it's countless people right at the center are the survivors who have really been at the forefront of calling for justice and kind of opening up how we think about redress but it's also been these activists right activists like Yun Mihang who have devoted their their whole life to thinking about how not only how do we call for official redress but how do we care for these women there are so many things that I think 
are not um, visible to the public when they look at this history, that oftentimes, um, as important as the Wednesday demonstrations are, they become the face of the movement. And people often think, oh, it's just demonstrations. When in fact, it is so much more than that. Um, it, it has been the decades long caring for of survivors. Like, like these activists, they, they, they go and visit the survivors, right? They, they have these true, like truly familial, I'm not even going to say familial like, they are like family. They are family to each other. And so they support each other that way. And they've been supporting the survivors, right? over many, many decades. And then there have been so many, um, you know, school children and high school and university students who have been in the audience to hear the survivor's testimony, but have also, um, you know, gone, for example, I mentioned the House of Sharing, going there to visit the women and taking care of the space or working in their own communities to raise money to build a memorial. Um, so it's been, you know, the, the movement is just, it's so much larger than we think. And the work that has been happening has also been more, I think, um, varied and dynamic um, and also intimate, right, than, than we think. But that's all part of the whole fabric of activism that has been in support of these women, right? Because it's been about not only calling for justice, but also honoring them, right, and caring for them. And so this then leads to an interesting question about what is then the future, Right, because so many women have passed away, and what is the future of the women, the movement around this particular issue of the of the come from in history? And I would say that the future is looking very bright, because this movement is transnational, but it's also intergenerational. And people, such as the organization that I partner with, can win recognize that calling for justice for the compromise survivors is part of the larger work of fighting against gender oppression and violence in all forms. And so this particular issue is not something that's just a, we can't ghettoize it as like an Asian issue. This is an issue that impacts all of us because the work of fighting gender-based injustice is ongoing. And it's not just about calling states to be accountable, it's calling for all of us to be accountable, right? Because in some way or another, we are all responsible for doing the work of fighting against gender-based oppression and violence and thinking about how we honor, right, these survivors and how we think about continuing the work of, um, you know, historical education around memorialization, but also thinking about larger, um, thinking about women's rights as human rights, right? And thinking about this as a gender-based issue. And so it has larger ramifications and we all kind of become part of it. And so the future of it is ongoing. You know, and some people ask me, you know, do you think the Japanese government will apologize, you know, and, and give them adequate apology and reparations? You know, I don't know. I want to stay hopeful about that. But I think the activists and survivors have showed us already that even if, but even if, so here's a tricky thing, even as they're calling for official accountability, there's also this awareness that justice is not only in the hands of governments or the court, right? It is in the hands of all of us. So the ways in which artists choose to tell this story or the ways in which an educator might teach this history, right? Or the ways in which 
um, those of us, you know, might be supporting organizations that support survivors of gender-based, contemporary survivors of gender-based violence. That are Those are just a few examples of the ways in which we all take part in doing the work of gender-based justice that these compromised survivors have started. Yeah, exactly. And I think this was so beautifully embodied in your uh, book, too, when you mentioned about how survivors made a butterfly fund that really shows how, uh, you know, through this pain and um, through uh, fighting against uh, gender-based violence, it actually connects, you know, peoples from colonized and like colonizer countries together. And that um, this also connects Asian Americans and Asians through this legacy of American imperialism. And it is recognized not by the state. And then as you so beautifully said, by non-state actors and um, in a way, um, asking redress and like keeping the movement going and teaching each other about the history in itself is the redressive movement that we can collectively create for all of us, which I think is just so, you know, beautifully said in your book and also by you as right now as well. Um, so this is the final question. Um, and this uh, that is, what are you currently working on right now? Yes, thank you for asking that question. Um, so I am currently working on my next project, which is looking at the interrelationship between Korean women's experiences of social and political violence and performance and place. So I guess as, a, as an example, I have a, a, an article that just came out in the edited collection, Race and Performance After Repetition. And it's a, an essay that is looking at the multimedia Korean diasporic artist Dohee Lee and her, and her performance of, uh, it's called Mago, where she is bringing together Korean um, mythology with Korean um, performance practices and thinking about the palimpsestic um, layers of um, militarism and um, neocolonialism on Jeju Island and way in, in which um, the memory of um, the Jeju massacre, how the legacies of that kind of continue and how people are kind of reckoning with memories around that, but ways in which artists are using art, right, as a way to create a space um, to think about the relationship between histories of violence, but also place. So, yeah, that's what I'm kind of currently currently working on um, and excited to move forward with. Oh, yeah, that sounds really fascinating and just like super relevant as well. And I love that, uh, you know, you are continuing to work with Kanwin. So uh, your research and your like activist life is in many ways like embodying what you're sa- saying, like collective remembrance and active resistance. So, uh, yeah, I, I really love that. And thank you so much for sharing your uh, fascinating uh project with us. (laughs) Yes, and I'm so glad you mentioned Can Win. I mean, that to me has been really important to think about the continuation of my my work. Um, And um, my partnership with with Can Win has been really wonderful because um, it's, you know, it's gotten me to kind of think about as for us as humanity scholars, what does it mean for us to engage, right, with the public? You know, what what does it mean for us to not only think about um, opening up the audiences that reach, but really truly thinking about what partnerships look like with local organizations. And so with Can I've had a you know chance to to lead um, workshops, to work on um, global kind of action verbal uh, virtual protest, and to kind of continue to kind of think about how do we do advocacy work here in Illinois and support this larger larger movement. 
And so I recommend, you know, checking out their 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 website, um, Can Win. There's a Comfort Women Justice website, um, and you can see the amazing work that they have been doing for a long time. And I'm I'm delighted to be able to um, partner with them. Yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, and thank you again、uh, for your time as well. And I really hope that I get to、uh, see you in person when the COVID is over, and maybe I'll even be able to visit Illinois. I always wanted to volunteer at Conwin, so it's <laughs> it would be a dream. It would be it would be wonderful, and I, I yeah, I really look forward to when we can see each other in person. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Liz. Thank you.